Now take out your notes sheet for tonight's sermon. You'll find there the questions and answers for Lord's Days 36 and 37, covering uh, all the Catechism has to say on the Third Commandment tonight. Beginning with question 99, I'll read the questions and we'll all confess the answers together. What is God's will for us in the Third Commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. May we also swear by saints or other created things? No, a legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart, to witness to the truth, and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Before we begin, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding the teaching of his word. Almighty God, without you we can do nothing, so we pray that you would illumine today your sacred word by your Holy Spirit, that our minds may be open to receive it, our hearts taught to love it, and our wills strengthened to obey it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> well, names are important things. Uh, parents often spend many hours considering what uh, the name for their child should be, what would be the best name. Uh, also, when we meet someone, usually the first thing we learn about them is their name, uh, and that becomes identified with them. Hearing certain names can cause in us pretty intense emotional reactions, whether positive or negative. So names are important things for us as human beings. Likewise, God's name is important. It's the most important name. Why is it so significant? Because it's not just what we call him. His name stands in for what and who he is. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. He's eternal and infinite and self-existent. The list goes on. As he, as he revealed his name to Moses, we, we see he's merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. This is who he is. This is what his name stands for, for his whole being. And because our God is triune, we should keep in mind tonight that everything we say about the name of our God and, and reverencing it, not taking it in vain, applies to all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So what the third commandment requires, the real thrust of it is that we always speak God's name with a view toward his glory, and we don't mention it at all 
if it will do the opposite of that, if it isn't honorable to him. As the Catechism begins to explain the third commandment, we first see several things we must not do, and above all, we must not blaspheme God's name, which essentially means to misuse his name, and this happens lots of different ways. It could be lying about him, saying that he is something that he isn't, or he isn't something that he is, underestimating his power, for instance. Blasphemy might be more direct. It might be words of hatred toward God, disrespecting him. It would also include uh, thoughtless or idle uses of his name, using the name of, of God or of Jesus as an exclamatory. When the name is used in that way, the appropriate weightiness of it is missing. Our God is glorious, and so is his name. And so his, his name should be used with reverence, not idly. So blasphemy is a, is a broad term, and it essentially covers all sins against the third commandment. And it's an extremely serious violation of God's law. That's what question and answer 100 is trying to remind us and and help us understand. In Leviticus 24, we read, one day a man who had an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father came out of his tent and got into a fight with one of the Israelite men. During the fight, this son of an Israelite woman blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. So the man was brought to Moses for judgment. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp, then let the entire community stone him to death. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. So this half-Israelite, half-Egyptian man, enraged in conflict, fighting this other Israelite, did not pause before using God's name. He used it offhandedly. And he used it sinfully to curse, presumably to curse the the man who he was fighting. And so he was stoned to death, even though he wasn't a full citizen. Foreigner or Israelite alike were to be stoned to death for misusing, for blaspheming the name of Yahweh. So question and answer 100 is reminding us that it's a high, high crime to blaspheme God's name. We see that in Leviticus 24 in that it carried the death penalty. And so the point being emphasized is how much we should value God's name, not using it offhandedly, not using it for our sins, but valuing it, valuing the name of the God who's done so much for us, the God who's given us new life in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. His name should not be misused. It should not be blasphemed. The list of sins we see in Q&A 99 fall under this broader umbrella of blasphemy, Uh, the first of which is cursing, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean the use of four-letter words. Instead, uh, when the catechism says cursing, it's talking about wishing evil, asking evil from God upon a human being. This was the type of curse that we just read about in Leviticus 24. We see another example of it in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. So when it says he cursed David, it's saying that Goliath was asking Dagon and whatever other demons he was serving that were posing as, as gods to bring devastation upon his opponent. Of course, it was wrong for the Philistine giant to curse by his false gods. How much more then 
Is it wrong for us to ask for the wrath of the true God to fall upon anyone? You and I are not in the position to render that judgment or to make that request of God. We are to love our enemies. We're to do good to those who mistreat us, to pray for those who persecute us, and to bless those who curse us, not curse them in return. So when we speak to God about any fellow human being, we should be asking for their good, not for evil to fall upon them. We should not curse. The Catechism also tells us we should avoid perjury. Uh, To perjure is to knowingly swear an oath without the intention of telling the truth. In other words, you promise, you swear in God's name or whatever else that you're going to tell the truth without ever having any intention of being truthful and in that way deceive the person to whom you're swearing. We must avoid this kind of deception and all other deception, as we'll see in a few weeks, but we must be lovers of the truth, not perjurers. The Catechism also warns us against taking unnecessary oaths, which we'll see uh, addressed in the next couple of questions for Lord's Day 37. But the final thing the Catechism says in 99 that we must avoid is silently standing by while others engage in these sins. As Christians, those who carry the name of our Savior, we can't give the impression to those who are blaspheming in our midst that we approve of what they're saying, what they're doing, by not saying anything about it ourselves. Now, as we've said, blasphemy is a broad term, and there are many sins that fall under this category. There are many things that violate the third commandment. So, to, to speak up against every instance of blasphemy that you see would likely be impossible. You wouldn't do anything else. But ask yourself this, are you willing to respond? When a friend misuses the name of God, Is that something that's easy for you to overlook, or is it something that that bothers you as a sin against your God that moves you to respond? Are you willing to ask from time to time, do you realize who this God is, whose name you're using so lightly? Of course, whenever we do speak up, we must do it uh, respectfully, out of love, gently, carefully. But the catechism is really pushing us here, saying that there are times where if we don't speak up, In defense of the honor of God's name, we become implicated. We share in the sin of blasphemy, even though we're not speaking it ourselves. So having laid out all these negatives, the Catechism next explains the positive requirement of the third commandment. We've heard what we shouldn't do with God's name, but what what should we do? Essentially, the answer is we obey Hebrews 12, 28. We worship with reverence and awe. And so I'll read Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 for us now, so we get, that whole, uh, we get the whole context in which that verse falls. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded." If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The first thing the writer to the Hebrews does in this passage is he reminds his Christian audience where they aren't. They haven't come to Sinai, to this place of dreadful sights and sounds, this place that was unbearable, unendurable, the mountain that caused even Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, to tremble with fear. The people couldn't approach God under these conditions. That's why it's good news that you and I have come to another mountain, to Mount Zion. No longer are we surrounded by fearful sights and sounds. Instead, we are enveloped by the joyous praise of the saints in heaven, in God's very dwelling place. Yet God is still pictured as judge. He's the judge of all. But we needn't fear this judge, for we have a mediator who is better than Moses and who is unafraid. A mediator who brings as a token, as a testimony, his own blood, saying that he has borne all of our guilt. Abel's blood cried out for revenge. Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy. Zion has replaced Sinai, meaning joy has replaced fear. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is the reality we live in as Christians. And because of this, the author issues a warning. If Zion is greater than Sinai, and it is by far, then how much more danger is involved in rejecting Zion? The Israelites hardened their hearts and refused to listen to Yahweh, and so they were denied entry to the land and the earthly rest that was offered in that land. But if those in the new covenant turn away from the promises of Christ, they'll be denied entry into the heavenly land and the everlasting rest that is offered there. The point that the author to the Hebrews is making is that perseverance in the faith is necessary. God warns his people that they must continue in the faith, and yet at the same time, he preserves them through those very warnings. Just as he saw fit to call us to faith through the proclamation of the gospel, he keeps us in the faith through warnings like this one here in Hebrews 12. And so, our response to this warning should be one of faith, gratitude, and worship. We who trust in Christ should feel immense immensely thankful that it's not up to us to make ourselves unshakable. Rather, as we're found in our Savior, we have an unshakable foundation. We're part of God's kingdom, which it cannot be shaken. And so we must worship acceptably with reverence and awe, confessing, calling upon, praising God's name with due respect to who he is and what he's done. This includes our singing. It includes our prayers. It includes our conversations with one another and with outsiders, and it includes our deeds as well. Our worship is something we offer as a a sacrifice of praise, not only in word, but in deed. And so, 
if those who follow Christ lead a wicked lifestyle, this is what Paul teaches us in Titus 2, if we lead a wicked wicked lifestyle, then those who are outsiders, who see that we bear God's name, will have cause to blaspheme him. His followers are wicked. This is not a good God. But on the other hand, a life of good works produced by the Holy Spirit is a testimony to the grace of our God, bringing glory to the Lord. And so we worship God with gratitude in words and in deeds. And we worship Him with an appropriate sense of His majesty and our lowliness. We should approach Him humbly. Of course, the the author to the Hebrews says elsewhere, we do approach God's uh, throne with boldness. But it's not a boldness that comes from a confidence in ourselves. It's a boldness that comes from a confidence in our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, why should we have this attitude of reverence and awe? Because God is the same God now as he always was and as he always will be. He's a consuming fire. He has been and always will be holy and perfect and true in his judgments. He's like a fire burning up all wickedness. But for those of us who ascend God's mountain, not alone, but accompanied by the Lord Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our salvation, our mediator, our sacrifice, the one who intercedes for us, our elder brother. God's fire refines us and purifies us. It does not consume us. And because we're not consumed, but rather empowered by God's Spirit, we're enabled to praise Him in everything we do and say with that appropriate sense of reverence and awe, remembering who He is and what he's done for us. This is what it means to honor God's name, to keep the third commandment in everything we do and say. As we move into Lord's Day 37 then, the focus uh, intensifies on this one issue related to uh, using the Lord's name, the issue of oath-taking. A few decades before our catechism was written, uh, the Anabaptists declared that all oath-taking was sinful for Christians, period. No circumstances under which you could take an oath rightfully. This position was largely based on their understanding of Jesus' words in uh, Matthew 5, especially verse 34. So we want to look at what Jesus has to say there. We want to be true to his teaching, but we also want to read it, uh, not just verse 34, but the whole passage. So I'll go ahead and read Matthew 5, 33 through 37 now, and we'll hear what the Lord has to say about our speech. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So we see right away in verse 33 that uh, the, under the old covenant, it was not just allowed, it was required to take oaths in God's name, in God's name alone. Jesus says the Israelites were told long ago they should swear in God's name. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. But as he describes what God's law requires in light of his coming, his ministry, his work, 
the dawning of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus says, do not swear an oath at all. On a straightforward reading of this part of this verse, it seems the Anabaptists are right. Jesus has forbidden all oath-taking, period. But that's not his final word. And so we need to ask, as Jesus continues to explain what he means, what is he teaching in these five verses together, not just in the first part of verse 34? And it seems that his point is that Christians, those in the kingdom of God, should speak with simple honesty. Our words should be less inflated than others, should be less filled with spiritualisms than others. If we're always saying, heaven help me, or so help me God, we drag the Lord's name down. We make it meaningless through frequent use, through flippant, off-handed, unthoughtful use. And so if we follow what the Lord has to say here, we'll speak simply. And in doing that, we'll guard God's name from misuse and from overuse. So apparently many people at that time were trying to do that. They were trying to keep the third commandment Instead of swearing by God's name, swearing by things related to God, by heaven or Jerusalem or earth, rather than using God's name itself. But Jesus calls them on that. Everyone knows what they're really doing when they say those things. They're swearing in God's name. They're just not actually saying his name. And so that's a, that's a cheap and obvious trick. Those substitutions don't work, Jesus says. He also says we shouldn't swear by our own heads. As creatures, we're not in ultimate control of our lives. We're not even the ones who decide what happens to our bodies. The Lord is the one who changes the color of our hair or causes it to fall out. We don't have the last word over our lives, and so we shouldn't call on ourselves as witnesses and verifiers of the promises we make. It makes no sense. So rather than all this swearing, either using God's name or things related to God or other created things, Christians should speak simply and honestly. We should, people who listen to the way we speak should notice that we use God's name perhaps less frequently but much more carefully than others. And they should also notice that our words are plain and honest because as verse 37 teaches us, there's something wicked about elaborate speech. Words that are meant to impress are evil. Jesus says the kind of talk that exceeds yes or no simplicity comes from Satan. And we see we can see that played out in in this age that we live in. Having to swear an oath so that someone is assured that you're telling them the truth is a sign that things are wrong. It's a sign that we live in an evil age where it's presumed that unless there's some threat of divine judgment then you'll lie. So as those who belong to the age to come, things should be different for us as Christians. When a Christian says, I'll come, you know that the Christian will come. If the believer says no, she means no. If a Christian joins a group, that person fully intends to be a part of that group. Yes means yes. And so Jesus is telling us to speak the truth at all times and whenever we can without calling on God as witness. We shouldn't make oaths ourselves. We shouldn't require oaths of each other. We should be people who love the truth, characterized by truth-telling with integrity and honesty. We should be trustworthy. But then, does that mean Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5 means that we can never take oaths at all under any circumstances? 
I don't think so. And our catechism explains that to us, giving us two situations when we can take oaths. The first of which is if the oath is demanded by the government. So if you're in court, you're called to testify under oath, the judge summons you to do this, you can go, you can go ahead and do that as a Christian. And what's the difference there? Well, that kind of oath isn't voluntary. It's demanded of you. The second situation is, is similar, but it's a little more vague. We can swear an oath if it's required by necessity. This doesn't help us much with concrete situations. What exactly necessity is uh, will be up to um, you as you pray for wisdom from above. But the, the point is the same. The catechism is saying that swearing is never a light thing. And unless all other options are off the table, we should not swear And so the final answer for us regarding when we can take oaths is that we cannot take oaths voluntarily. We must be compelled to do so by the government or by some other necessity. Next, the catechism explains, if we're going to be required to take an oath, uh, we should comply, and why we should do that when it's required of us. And the primary reason is to maintain and promote truth. If we're asked to take an oath, if we're compelled to take an oath by the government, for example, we, we display a, a healthy respect for authority and compliance with the law when we do that, which increases our trustworthiness in the eyes of the state as citizens of our earthly kingdoms. And this promotion of truth glorifies God. He is truth, and he loves when we tell the truth. Also, by swearing, as we'll see in the, in the next part, Only by the name of God, we're confessing our faith, declaring that only the God of the Scriptures is the one who can verify, uh, who can witness to the truth of our words. The promotion of truth also helps our neighbors. To tell the truth is better than to lie, and our society even recognizes this. Although it's far less than ideal, a society that respects oath-taking and takes it seriously, recognizes that truth is better than lies. Further, when it comes to telling the truth in court, oath-taking can serve to see that justice is done. And so, promoting the truth through these lawful, uh, reverent forms of oath-taking benefits our neighbors and it glorifies God. But we must do that in the right way. If we are to swear, we must do it reverently, As we already saw in Matthew 5, this means that we cannot swear by anything other than God himself, not by any created thing, not ourselves, not Jerusalem, not the earth, not even heaven. All creation is changeable, but God is unchanging. He knows the heart. He is the one who judges all he's made. That's why he's the only basis for human trust, the only one we should call upon to witness to the truth of our words. So as we conclude our time thinking about the third commandment tonight, I would imagine most of us aren't seriously tempted to use God's name as a curse word. We're probably rarely compelled to take oaths. It doesn't happen frequently in our society. So I think the most relevant question for us to consider is this. What value does God's name have in your heart? And how does that play out in your words? Do you defend the name of God when those around you use it lightly? Are you more concerned with their response to you speaking up, or are you more concerned with the honor of God's name? 
Are you using God's name to justify your sin? This has happened plenty of times in church history. We're not beyond that happening to us. Do you use God's name or other spiritual equivalents, related things, lightly or casually? As I was thinking about this, one thing I was convicted about, perhaps it's the same for you some days, when you pray before a meal, are you using the Lord's name simply as the the green light to begin eating? Are you really thanking him, thinking about him, praying to him reverently? Finally, is bringing glory to God's name the aim of your life, in word and in deed, in public and in private? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, is it for the glory of God's name? Brothers and sisters, these are tough questions because we're not perfect people. Following God's law is not easy. It's not a simple task to avoid all blasphemy. It's challenging to set the Lord at the top of our priority list and to orient everything in our lives word and deed, at all times, in public and private, to glorifying his name. It's difficult. But remember that this commandment and all these commandments that we're talking about this time in the year come to us as guides for new life, not as means of obtaining life. Christ has redeemed us by his blood and is transforming us into his image by the Holy Spirit. And so because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's finger is not pointed at you in accusation. His arms are open wide to welcome you, even when you fail to keep the third commandment. He welcomes you because of Christ. So go out and obey with joy and with gratitude and with confidence, knowing that the Spirit will empower you to obey the third commandment in all the ways we've discussed as the Spirit continues to transform you all for God's glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, your name is the name above all others. It is glorious because you are glorious and have done glorious things. You've created us and you have redeemed us. We thank you for that and we ask you to help us honor your name as we should, to treat it as holy and beautiful, not to misuse it or to stand by while others do so, Instead, may we mention your name humbly in our prayers and in our praise, and may all we do as your servants lead us to honor your name, to seek the increased glory of your name. And Father, in your law we behold wondrous things, so empower us to keep it in gratitude and in joy. We ask these things of you, our God, in the name of Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you would take out tonight's liturgy sheet once again, we'll transition now to a time of prayer.